everyone, to the fourth episode of season four of the Northern Spin podcast. I can't believe we've got this far with our podcast, Chris. Amazing. Brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management. So I'm Michael Taylor, a lifelong journalist and occasional politico and the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest. Here's the cheeky chappy from Chorley himself, the banter king of Kent, Chris Maguire. Back from the cricket wicket. How did you do at the weekend, Chris? Only got 11 at the weekend, hit a full toss straight to mid on. You'll be pleased to know. Right, okay. Is that bad? It was poor. Yeah, it was right. a poor But ball. did your team win? Did you contribute got to annihilated that? by seven wickets against Standish. So thanks for asking. Moving on. We need and to move this conversation on. Did you do any throwing as well as hitting? No, I didn't. Throwing. It's called bowling. Oh, no, okay. No, you're proving that uh, you know a lot about a lot of things, but cricket isn't one of them. But you'll be pleased to know we're big in Denmark. Oh, great. Yeah, well, we- I've always liked the Danes. So anyway, Chris, on a serious note, I think um, one of the things you've done over the last week that I think we should talk about on this podcast this week is talking about your recent treatment for skin cancer, which I know you want to talk about later. It's really good that you're making people aware of it. And as a cricketer who spends a lot of time out in the field as well, you know, the importance of, you know, the facts of 50 and the and the caps and all the rest of it. Yeah, and we're recording this on Tuesday, obviously because of the bank holiday, and uh, it's sunny outside. The first thing you did when you walked in here was put your uh, suntan lotion on. That's good to see. You had a little operation in January. I've spoken out about it because I want to raise awareness of skin cancer because it's uh, Skin Cancer Awareness Month in May. Um, but I also want to assure our dear listeners that my good looks are intact. As uh, Michael said, he's the editor of Business Desk. I'm the editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast, and it's been another busy week, Michael. It has indeed. Um, a very tough week again for the Tories. Rishi Sunak is under pressure. Suella Braverman is under the cosh. Boris Johnson is embroiled in a fresh controversy. And Ben Blockerhouchen is back in the news. Well, apologies for the slight delay there, but I was looking at last week's script when I realised nothing has changed in the Tory party. It's almost like deja vu, isn't it? It can't be easy being a lowercase conservative, lowercase c conservative, Chris. That's right. You could have been looking at last month's scripts, last week's scripts, last year's script. It's hard to disagree with you, Michael. Um, It's been another bad week for the Conservative Party, I think it's fair to say. But uh, it's also, for the purpose of uh, balance, it's also fair to say that it's been another week without a genuine Labour policy announcement. Rubbish. You're talking (laughs) nonsense and we'll debate that later on. Um, Time for a quick thank you as well. Yeah, Don't you abs- think? yeah, yeah. actually, I do. Uh, the government's made a lot of noise this week. What we're going to talk about in this week's episode, I do need to mention the new railway station at Salford Crescent. Um, that, uh, that fell as flat as one of my jokes. Um, <laughs> probably even worse, actually. We're also going to talk about the government's U-turn on building 40 new hospitals and the implications on the north and why Boris Johnson, your favourite PM, just can't stay out of trouble. Well, time for a quick thank you uh, after all of that. We couldn't do this podcast without our friends at What Media, the kings of video content creation and excellent producers of this podcast. They make us feel like a part of the team at What Media. And thanks as ever to Charlie and Ellis for producing this week's show. Absolutely. Um, the, the boss of What Media, Chris Townsend, he spoke at an event I hosted last week, a uh, How to Progress in Business event at KPMG. It was great, really enjoyed it. He spoke about some new technology that they're getting behind called Automated Brand Conversation, or ABC for short, which allows you to mass produce videos in a timely and cost-effective manner. It's a game changer. If you want to know about it, contact our friends at What Media. And on that note, we're going to go to our first interval. 
FI Real Estate Management is not just your traditional property company. Founded in 1982 and managing assets totaling more than 1 billion, FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on going on the journey with their tenants. FI Real Estate Management, the property company with personality, just like us, Michael. Indeed, Chris. So we've got some exciting plans for season four of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management to sponsor the show and reach a growing audience, then please get in touch with Chris or I or our friends at What Media. And it's fair to say, public announcement, Michael's not himself today because the final episode of Succession was viewed last night. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to have any spoilers. Well, we're going to talk about it in the final part. We're not going to talk about the actual episode itself. But uh, when we mentioned, you know, season four, that must have hurt you because that must have been <laughs> bringing back memories. Now, something that has brought back a few memories as well. We're going to start this episode of Northern Spin by talking about a big railway announcement last week that hit the buffers. Tell us what happened, Michael. Yep. So last week I got an embargoed government press release with a photo call date with Hugh Merriman, the rail minister, who was going to be at Salford Crescent Station, where he was announcing that a new platform will be built, all good so far, plus some new improvements at Manchester Victoria Station. When you looked into it, though, it was a desperately dishonest and outrageously upbeat message delivering and claiming a whole series of positive developments as evidence of the government's great track record in investing in the rail network when in fact it was none of those things. So going back 15 years, I was involved in a campaign that supported something called the Northern Hub. And that was for a series of relatively low cost, but tactically useful enhancements to the railway network that would improve capacity and performance right across the board. They included the Audsall Cord, which is the line that goes, that enables trains to go from Victoria round the back of the Science Museum and then cutting along to Oxford Road and Piccadilly. Altogether, those, those improvements, Platform 15 and 16 at Piccadilly, the rerouting of some of the freight networks and indeed improvements to Salford Crescent Station, altogether, they would really demonstrate some improvements to the network. Individually, they wouldn't know. So George Osborne started the project. Chris Grayling, or failing Grayling as he became known, delayed it. And now effectively Hugh Merriman, the rail minister, has cancelled it with Network Rail announcing that they've pulled their planning application for platforms 15 and 16 at Manchester Piccadilly Station. There is no other plan in reserve. They said they're going to have a commission to look at it. The truth is, Chris, there's nothing. There's no plan. The huge investment into Audsall Cord has meant there are more trains than ever coming through Oxford Road and Piccadilly Station, but no capacity to be able to deal with the extra traffic. The bigger problem of that bottleneck simply hasn't been addressed, and the extensions to Piccadilly platforms 15 and 16 appear, in the short term at least, to have been axed. This has been going on for 20 years, and frankly, it's not good enough. You'd be pleased something is being done on one hand, but we quoted lots of people, including Emma Antrobus from the Civil Engineers um, Institute, who said, we need a coherent transport strategy with effective leadership and accountability, an integrated approach to sustainability and levelling up, and certainty from the government to deliver it. We have got none of those things. The press release also had a quote from Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, welcoming the investment at Salford Crescent and Victoria, but none of the regional press bought this shameless line. Andy, Andy's comments were qualified and cautious, and I interpreted them as a polite but cautious and qualified welcome, and I got no pushback from his office 
whatsoever. So excuse me for not tooting the klaxon at this this at this news. It's too little, too late, and not enough. And yet another Tory betrayal of the North, Chris. Well, I liked, there was a line that you mentioned in that uh, speech when you spoke about track record. And I thought to myself, has he deliberately put that in there? No, I don't think he did because you're passionate. I'm passionate about it as well. I agree with everything you've said. One of the problems with politicians, most politicians or their 20-something advisors is they seem to treat the public, especially the North, as if they're stupid and they treat them with contempt. Now, if you think about it, in the North, we were going to get high speed too. Now we're not. Then Liz Truss, God bless her, seven weeks Liz Truss, announced that the £40 billion Northern Powerhouse Rail would be built in full with a brand new stop in Bradford and a link with High Speed 2. She announced that during her leadership campaign. So some people would say she's just trying to win the Northern vote. Then Rishi Sunak's government said they'd be scaling back on these plans to build the Northern Powerhouse Rail in full. And instead, they'd focus on a less ambitious core plan. That's long-term stuff. You know, if we just talk about the day-to-day, Trans Pennine Express, as of the weekend, is now under government control. Avante West Coast isn't good enough. We know that. We know can't even get Wi-Fi on the trains. So have they officially stopped that now? Um, or is yeah. it just so bad it's not worth it? I'd never bother anymore. What, in terms of the... Wi-Fi on trains. Well, I mean, we, we had a few friends of ours used to go down to London all the time and they could never get Wi-Fi on the trains. You compare our system with the uh, with the bullet in uh, Japan. I, I listened or to something anywhere. at the weekend. Yeah, I listened to something at the weekend about that. And uh, it's, like working, it's like working in an office when you work on that train. I want to broaden the conversation beyond railways because the Conservatives have done some backtracking this week over their pledge to build... 40 new hospitals by 2030. Now, this has been on the cards for a while. Health Secretary Steve Barclay were told the BBC Sunday with Laura Koonsberg programme that not all the 40 new hospitals promised for England by 2030 will actually be new hospitals. They could include a refurbishment and a new wing. It reminds me of that sketch in Only Fools and Horses where Trigger says he's had the same brush for 20 years. And he says, have you? Dale Boy says, have you? He said, yeah, other than the 20 new heads, and the 15 new handles, it's the same brush. I almost think that the definition that the Conservatives are coming up with a new hospital could actually be little more than a ward or a wing. I want to take you back to something that uh, Boris Johnson said in the 2019 party conference. He promised to, quote, totally rebuild the North Manchester General Hospital. And then the FT's Jenny Williams, fantastic journalist, tweeted last week that it looked like the rebuild of the aforementioned North Manchester General Hospital would be kicked down the road Although the MEN, and there was a bit of backtracking on this, the MEN reported that the rebuild remained part of the government's plan, although there's very little detail, let alone a a, a timetable. So not for the first time, Boris Johnson's 2019 promise looks as empty as he is. Um, What do you think about this? The the more you think about, the more you talk about Boris Johnson and what he didn't do, and the false promises he made, he, he truly is in his, going to enter history as possibly the worst prime minister this country's ever had. Tying, obviously, with Liz Truss, who didn't have the time, although she managed to crash the economy in the space of a really short bit of time. But let's let's not dwell on Johnson, really. Uh, so Steve Barclay was sent out on Sunday to do the rounds of the media to hold the Tory line, and I think he looked terrible. I wouldn't, I'm not just saying that because, as you accuse me of always being laborish, he got a hard time on the government's 40 new hospitals pledge, quite rightly. Another Johnson lie, as he said. And, and he admitted it will be delayed into the next decade. He told, he told Laura Koonsberg on the BBC, there's a range of things we might see, including hospitals being gutted and fully refurbished. There are other hospitals, by the way, requiring new roofs. But where's the plan? 
where's the plan for any of this? And it's just fuzzy words. Quizzed on the long-awaited workforce plan to deal with chronic sh staff shortages in the NHS, he insisted that to Sky News that it was coming soon, although he wouldn't commit to when that's next month, next year, next quarter, whenever. And on the social care plan, he wouldn't confirm whether there would be one this side of an election. All told, a shambles. Yeah, you just get the feeling that we're on this... Um we're in this like dead duck type period at the moment where everybody knows there's a general election coming and people are making promises knowing that they're not going to be delivered, certainly in this time scale. Continuing the Boris Johnson theme, the uh, the MP for Uxbridge and South Ryslip has been busy representing his constituents um, in America. Last week, he cut ties with a cabinet office appointed lawyers who were uh, paid for by us, a taxpayer, to support him through the COVID inquiry after he was reported to police again over fresh Partygate allegations. Apparently, his pandemic diaries have been handed over to the police, outlining visits by friends of his to checkers during COVID. Now, Johnson was approached by Sky News on Sunday before catching another flight uh, to Washington, no doubt representing his constituents again, in which he said, any rules of rule breaking were absolute nonsense. Now, two questions. How serious do you think these new allegations are? And how damaging do you think the ghost of Boris Johnson is to Rishi Sunak? Well, Rishi Sunak served in his government, so how, however much he wants to distance himself from Johnson, he hasn't made the big, brave decisions. Let's, th let's just go back. So in 2019, this country faced the worst choice it ever had between two candidates for prime minister, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, right? Jeremy Corbyn's practically been kicked out of the Labour Party by Keir Starmer. Rishi Sunak tolerates Johnson on his backbenches. He's he, he sort of he has his people spinning against him, you know, the 20 something army of advisors that you, you you mentioned earlier on. What he should do is publicly berate his predecessor. He should kick him off the benches. He, he should support the moves that are being made at all levels, both legally and through the different parliamentary privileges committee to boot him out. But he doesn't. And every day that we go by, we see Johnson exposed as a liar and a charlatan. And he really needs to be out of public life. He's an absolute stain on our democracy. So while he's been on this speaking tour, Chris, and it's not just to America, it's been to Seoul, South Korea, Mumbai, Shanghai. Yeah, he's been over to Texas as well as Washington. And in that time, he's missed 179 out of 181 votes in the House of Commons. You won't get any opposition. That is disgraceful. It is disgraceful. And you won't get any kickback from me on that, other than to say, I think it's a lot easier when you're in opposition for Starmer to make those sort of changes. You know, Sunak knows that if he... Why? Well, Sunak knows that if he John, was Johnson to, didn't, didn't hide from it when he was prime minister. He kicked out Ken Clark, Rory Stewart, all these other... Philip Hammond, all these other sensible Tories yeah, but over I mean, the Brexit issue. He kicked them out of the party. He's ruthless. Yeah, he, he, was, he was at the start. Sunak is then, not ruthless. He's weak. Um, well, I think I this is say, showing his weakness. I would say Sunak is more considered. What I would say in terms of like the decision about Suella Braverman, whether to get rid of her over uh, her speeding, actually, when you actually look at it in the cold light of day, did she do anything that bad? Well, it wasn't bad enough to be sacked, but some prime ministers would have got rid of uh, Suella Braverman and some people would say that would be the best yeah. thing he could have done. I just think that, um, I just think it's slightly easier in opposition. What I would say is the problem that's, 
Boris Johnson's got is he can't say anything um, really anti Boris Johnson because of the right of the party because he's already he's a prisoner walking, he's already walking a tightrope and he's worried that if he goes out against uh, Boris Johnson or criticises Suella Braveman who's obviously to the right of the party then he'll have another rebellion. True. Now, anyway, the mind boggles, Chris. Um, the mind boggles. The mind does boggle. We pre- we uh, previewed the net immigration figures in last week's episode. I think there was a bit of more uh, stage management last week because the suggestion was it could top seven hundred thousand. When it came in at six hundred and five thousand, the thoughts were, well, that could have been worse. Um, so we're not going to dwell too much on that, but that's a serious number. We spoke about um, in last week's episode about the fact that a number of these um, a number of these uh, you know people immigrating to or coming into the UK were actually students or the families of students and we were talking about the fact that 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 if you were to stop that you know the number of foreign students that Manchester's a university is dependent on you couldn't you couldn't survive without them uh, two or three people said the same thing to me last week as well um, you mean things I say on this podcast get proved to be true some things that you say on this podcast do get uh, proven to be true <laughs> but now, you don't believe them when I say them but believe them when your I tech, tech bro mates say them to you at the events that you host um tech bro mates and tech bro sisters um now <laughs> Are you a big fan of Jilly Cooper? I could just see you getting stuck into an episode of Riders. I read everything. I've read, I've read, she wrote a novel called Rivals, which is about the television industry. When Mm. I was a reporter for Television Week magazine covering the television industry. And it was brilliant. Really well written. When I used to work down so, at, And I then read all the horsey Gloucestershire ones as well. Dear, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've, not, I've, not read the, I've not read any for a long, time. All those bonkbusters? That's what they call them, isn't it? Yeah, yes. apparently so. I've never yes. read them. Yes. Um, I've spoken to her quite a few times because when I used to work down at Gloucestershire... In Gloucestershire, of course. Yeah, yes. that's right. Polo. She, lives, she won about Polo, didn't she? Um, well, she she lives in the Cotswolds and she was one of those people that you'd pick up the phone to, you had a mobile number and she was the nicest person. I bet, um, yeah. Now, the only bit of good news to come out for the Tories last week, I think came from the IMF, with the news sorry the, what's the relevance of J- Jilly Cooper oh what well, sorry yeah um, because uh, Risha Sunak said in his interview on this morning that uh, he was a big fan of Jilly Cooper uh-huh. novels yeah yeah um, I bet he couldn't name one no, he named about five. Oh, did he? No, okay. that's you being cynical. You see, yeah, the thing cynical. is, you see, you, you, you question... He's massively inauthentic. You question that I disbelieve those things that you make those points about. And I tell you that Richard Sunak can name all of Jilly Cooper's novels and okay. you question that nugget yeah. of information. But even I can read them. <laughs> now, the only bit of good news other than that was uh, from the IMF with the news that the UK economy is expected to avoid recession this year. I think it just goes to show how low the bar is set. The International Monetary Fund has said after it sharply upgraded its growth forecast, it now expects the UK to grow by 0.4% in 2023. No doubt, Michael, you've got the bunting out at that disclosure. Well, if we avoid a technical recession, then you know there is some good news within that, but it's it's nothing to get the bunting out, even if you're a dyed-in-the-wool, small-c conservative, Chris. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anyone would say that these are boom times and avoiding a technical recession may positively impact confidence. So far, so good. But Jeremy Hunt actually insists his priority is is curbing economic activity and inflation and that actually going into recession might be a price well worth paying. Now, just get this. Every day, pretty much, I write company results stories from the stock market. Last week, take the good ones, pets at home. um, They had very positive set of results. But within that, they're making cost cuts. Yeah, I had another one today, um, DWF, a law firm, Fifteen million pounds worth of costs cut out of the out of the the company's budget. That's people's livelihoods. That's people's jobs. This stuff comes home to roost. Pets at home have cut have renegotiated twenty percent 
off their rental bills when they've come to break clauses in some of their stores that they're renegotiating on. So, and the, you know, squeezing suppliers, wages are getting squeezed in other circumstances. It's still pretty grim and pretty tough out there, whatever some of the technical stats might show. I hosted a round table today, uh, Tuesday, with about 14 tech businesses and experts around the room and bros bros yeah bros and sisters yeah and one of the things that came out was that um m a activity has definitely slowed down this it year has, hasn't it no yeah. great surprise yeah. yeah um that's mergers and acquisitions activities yeah. kids um, a lot of um do you think we've got many young listeners definitely um and also a number of companies are holding back on recruitment but there is a feeling that maybe the worm has turned and maybe we're on the upward trajectory again which will be good news now i want to talk about something very close to your heart which is the labor party um because uh, you were uh, you've been chumming up to some of your favorite labor people last week haven't you tell us I, about that i was chris last thursday i was with my people <laughs> i was at the launch of labor's creative industries north network at itv and actually i met two people afterwards who i didn't understand the significance of them until afterwards one of them was carolyn mccall the chief executive of itv and the other was the director of corporate affairs of ITV, who is now in this big storm about the, uh, the this morning show and who knew what when. But anyway, I wasn't there to cover that story. What I was there to do though was support the launch of this network. Angela Rayner was the headline act. She was hugely impressive, I have to say. She had no scripts. She was on point, generous, authentic, direct, and clearly very, very well liked by the Labour supporting people who were present. I also met some other fantastic people. Danny Brocklehurst, the writer of Brassic, Rose Marley from the Co-op UK, Co-ops UK, and the uh, really working with Oliver Wilson, Tony Wilson's son, on this new festival coming up in October called Beyond the Music. I met Tom Gray from the band Gomez, and he's chair of the Ivers and a vociferous campaign for artist rights. But you, that's another band you won't have heard of, isn't well, it? Well, Gomez. You, you, sent me a, you sent me a photo of you with um, Me with and him. Tom and yeah. Jonathan Reynolds. Absolutely. And I didn't recognise Gomez at all. But you recognised Johnny, didn't you? I did, yeah. I thought Gomez played for Liverpool. They're, they're a Northwest band, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I think he might be from Widnes or somewhere like that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, the work that Tom's doing to try and find uh, better opportunities for artists... It's really highlighted once again, the rubbish Brexit deal and how it's made life much harder for touring bands in particular to go to Europe, raise the costs and raise the bureaucracy of it. So shout out as well to any listeners, to a few listeners that I met there as well, including DJ Dave Haslam, who says he's met you, by the way. Yeah, you have yeah. the end of fame. Plenty of, there was plenty of talk as well. We should, which to be fair, about the role of mayors in delivering a cultural strategy, what's been done here in Greater Manchester, in Liverpool, how you know, Liverpool delivered a great Eurovision, the importance of Tracy Brabin, a former Coronation Street actor, who's now, of course, the mayor of West Yorkshire. And yeah, it's good. It's a really good evening. Met okay. loads of great people. So, so you had a great time mixing with these um, Labour chummies of yours. Was there any sight of that little spotted Labour policy announcement that we've been talking about for about the last six months? Yes, Chris, as I've just said, a renegotiated Brexit deal. Lucy Powell, Labour MP for Manchester Central and Labour's Shadow Culture Secretary, spoke in great detail about that. They also spoke about, as I just did, about the better Brexit deal being able to deliver better 
outcomes for artists who are touring. And let Chris, you're just being needlessly egregious when you say <laughs> things like that. You know Labour has got lots of policies. You just want to say they haven't. Uh, Rachel Reeves, by the way, last week published a paper that set out how a modern supply side programme would deliver what she called securonomics for Britain. It sets out a new industrial strategy that can identify the areas where the UK can and must thrive. Green Prosperity Plan, National Wealth Fund, GB Energy. So, Chris, you can criticise Labour all you like. You are free to do that, but don't say that they and don't demean the serious nature of this podcast by claiming with your cheap barbs things that you know not to be true. No, absolutely. You've caught me and you've got me <laughs> bang to right. Uh, one thing I would say, actually, um, Sunday Times at the weekend did a piece about uh, Labour and uh, you know putting a stop to any future North Sea oil. Um, yeah, what do you think of that? Well, it's not new. It's not new. But I think there is a serious point that I'm trying to make is that I don't think people look at Keir Starmer and think he's going to do this, this, this and this. I don't think he's got his message across in terms of what they're going to bring. They're just not going to be the Conservatives. So you are right. They are making policy announcements, but I don't think they're getting as much traction with the public as they need. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that one. But I think the the overarching issue is you have to sometimes look at politics beyond just the performative to and fro on the media rounds and the to and fro in parliament and all the rest of it and think these people are actually engaged in the serious business of trying to change the country for the better. Yeah. And sometimes the public don't have the attention span to, to see all the detail of all of that. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, let's go for a quick interval. So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month, I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges, and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. Well, welcome back to part two of Northern uh, Spin. And we've got another, another five-star review. This one is headlined, great to have them back. And this is from Massey314, who I assume is none other than Jonathan Massey, who is a director of Rowan Executive Search and a big fan of the podcast. What's he said? Jonathan says, season four continues where the previous season left off. It's a it's great to get the insight into the politics of the North and also pick up things that I may have missed in the news. Along with the regular on manoeuvres and the banter, it is just a cracking listen. Oh, I'm well in this. You're well enough. Jo- Jonathan, thank you. Yeah. I just love it that people are listening to what we're doing and it's having an impact. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. And what we try and do is we um, we always try and give feedback and we also try and get that uh, engagement as well. So before I go to anything to see here section, I do want to ask you about some feedback from another listener uh, in relation to uh, Blackpool South MP, Scott Benton, who if you are playing Northern Spin Bingo, we've not been mentioning as much recently. He, of course, has had the Tory whip removed from him after a uh, rather embarrassing newspaper sting. Now, Anthony Morrow, who we've also spoken about recently, he's the co-founder of FinTech Open Money. That's 
Is he a tech bro? Yeah, see, he's a tech bro. Yeah, he's a tech bro. You've got this image that, you know, we've all got leather jackets with the word tech bro on the back. Um, we haven't. In fact, I'm not sure Anthony Morrow has got a leather jacket, but he's a big fan of the podcast and uh, oh, we discussed him in recent episodes. Hi, Anthony. He's a Labour member oh. of many years standing, so he'll be a friend of yours. Originally from South Shore in Blackpool. Incidentally, uh, White Coppice plays South Shore this weekend at cricket. He now lives in the Tatton constituency in Cheshire. George Osborne's old uh, stomping ground and now represented by uh, your favourite MP, Esther McVeigh. Now, like a lot of people, um, he thinks Benton is an idiot, but wanted to say that the MP has delivered stuff in his local area, that would be South Shore, including, I'm quoting here, cleaning up the parks so that families can go there, the tackling of insidious drug problems in many of the areas, and improving bus services. So happy to put that forward, Anthony. I mean, obviously, has it changed your view on Scott Benton, Michael? Well... Can I, can I just say, Scott Benton actually has no power over parks and recreation in Blackpool. He also has no, prop, no power over policing and control of the drugs that are going on in a, in a very serious way in South Shore in Blackpool. That's down to the council. So it's a bit like, you know, well, I respect that Anthony's family might have seen leaflets from Scott Benson and seen him raising these issues and urging the council to do it. So that's fair enough. It doesn't make him a good MP just because he highlights stuff that's going on. It's a bit like me saying the hot dogs in Ikea in Ashton Underline at the moment are really great. And that's all down to Angela Rayner. But what I will say is the hot dogs at Ikea in Ashton are really nice, aren't they? Um, because my daughter only goes to Ikea with my wife to get a hot dog. I think we are bringing this conversation to a whole new level. Um, so let's go to our section, Anything to See Here. Northern Spring Bingo wouldn't be complete without a mention of Ben Blocker-Houtsian. There was a big, big development last week. and We've been calling for it. And I know Michael Go probably listens to this podcast. But uh, the levelling up secretary has ordered an inquiry into Teesworks to probe claims of, quote, corruption, wrongdoing and illegality. You just get the impression now that this whole Teeswork controversy has entered a new phase. I don't know if you have that view. Yeah. So you're asking the question, anything to see here? And I would say maybe. Yeah. And I think it's good that Michael Gove has commissioned an inquiry. And no doubt it will be a thorough examination of the facts and bring transparency and openness to a whole series of processes that have severely lacked those aspects thus far. Call me perceptive, but can I just pick up a trace of cynicism in your voice? No, let's just start from a position of optimism. Okay. Um, but no, it's, but the, the point is, bring some transparency to it because that's what's been lacking. Yeah, I do think the timescale will be interesting given the fact we're probably 13 months out from a general election. <coughs> so you would want this investigation to be completed fairly quickly yeah. as opposed to to be dragging on. Um, keeping and staying in the northeast, I want to ask you about coalitions. So Labour have announced they're going to lead Darlington Borough Council after it was agreed a coalition deal with the Liberal Democrats. Lots of talk about tactical voting. Do you think a Lib Labour Dem, uh, sorry, a Lib Dem Labour coalition is is important of things to come? Uh, at national level, no, I still don't think it's on the cards. But what I do think is that there is a visceral dislike of the Tories out there, and that is leading to more tactical voting. So all people not turning out to vote for the Tories at all, as we saw in the local elections. 
And I think it will see a number of losses for the Tories at the expense of the Liberal Democrats who will increase their presence in Parliament beyond the, what have they got at the moment? 15, like I think. 15, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they keep picking them up in by-elections, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Um, at local level, you've seen the same, not only in Darlington and Redcar in the northeast, but in the northwest as well. Bolton is now a Labour-led minority administration with support from the Liberal Democrats. Lancaster is a Labour-led minority administration working with the Greens, who are the second largest party on the council, but nobody wants to partner with the Tories. Local government's often about, you know, deals in back rooms and, you know, getting things through on the nod. But uh, no one wants to partner with the Tories because they're absolutely toxic at the moment. So let me ask you one, Chris. Journalists are going to be boycotting Tories, the Tory annual conference in Manchester this October because the Conservative Party want to charge journalists £137 for each application. Personally, I think that is dreadful. And it's really cheap by the Tories. I'm refusing to pay it. Business Desk is going to be going to the Labour conference and we will be around the fringes at the Tory conference, but we ain't paying 137 quid to perform a public service. We should be able to register, as we always have, for party political conferences for a press ticket for now. I'm sorry. It's bang out of order well i know our listeners like a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of uh, you know to and fro between ourselves yeah go on but, defend it defend it well you can't defend it you can can't. you it's no, just right. it's absurd it's it's short-sighted i think um and i, I expect the, the conservatives to see sense and uh, to you know do another u-turn the, the thing is is that you know the political party should be courting the media if you go back to uh, tony blair's time and alistair campbell they flew over to australia to see uh, to see the murdochs um so I, I do think it's very odd given how far behind you know the labor party that they are that they should do something that should drive an even bigger wedge between them and the media um something i want to talk about which is um in Tory MPs, not just Tory MPs, because there's also an SMP MP. So uh, Amanda Soloway, who's a minister, Simon Hoare and Bim Afalami, who's, uh, who's making a name for himself for all the wrong reasons, and the SMP's Dave Dugan, they've been asked to pay back hundreds of pounds in driving fines, mm. which they claimed on expenses. And it's one of those things that you think, oh, not another one, to quote that lady who's a meme from, uh, from Bristol. Anything to see here? Yes, it is a shocking state of affairs and there's no excuse for Now, there are some fantastic journalists out there. You accused me two episodes ago of being a Guardian reader. I have to confess that (laughs) I listened to a podcast. Yeah, I listened to a podcast. Well, lowercase l, Labour supporters. (laughs) Well, at the moment, I think. Um, There's a Guardian reporter called Heather Stewart. Now, she might not be a household name to a lot of people out there, but this woman deserves a medal as far as I'm concerned. For the purpose of journalism, she spent a week watching GB News for a feature. I generally... Can't imagine anything worse. Um, but one interesting statistic that came out last week was that GB News attracted more viewers for a spell measured in hours, not days, than BBC News and Sky News. I think that's a real worry. I really do, because, you know, I don't regard GB News as a genuine impartial TV station. Anything no. to see here? No, no, I don't think they would either. I think there's clearly a market, though, for this right-wing, easy answers, conspir- conspiracy peddling nonsense. Well, let's, let, let me ask you a media question. The BBC this week have also launched a new fact-checking service called BBC Verify. Why do you think this is important? I think a lot of people, myself included, have 
have lost faith with what they're reading on websites, hearing on radios or watching on TVs as well. And the BBC, because they're publicly funded, get more scrutiny than most people as well. And the BBC know that they need to try to restore public confidence in their products so that people believe what they're being told. I think it highlights the problems of fake news. And there was a, a piece that I read before we recorded today, people talking about AI being the death of humanity. Um, AI clearly is technology. It's, it's, um, and I think we've genuinely have got to the point in our lives now where you struggle to believe what you're reading as being true. I think the hope is that BBC Verify, which I welcome, will um, dispel question marks over BBC, um, you know, and uh, the, the whether or not you can believe their integrity. What it doesn't do, and this is important, there's lots of question marks over BBC bias and the BBC new sense. I'll give you an example over the weekend, which I saw. Um, we've decided we're not going to comment on the um, Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby, you know, f- like soap opera, which is going on at the moment, which seems to be dominating uh, the Daily Mail's website for sure. We can't provide any insight. There's no point in us talking about it above and beyond a slight cursory mention. However, Richard Sandbrook, who is the next director of BBC News, tweeted over the weekend that uh, while the BBC have indulged his words not mine the length of its coverage of Philip Schofield they relegated a story about a not fit for purpose supplier of PPE making 47 million pounds their local pages so just to explain they've got the national pages you know the ones that you want to get the big stories on and then they've got their local pages that only people in local regions can read now I think that's a really good point that uh, Richard Sandbrook has made and one thing BBC Verify won't do is it won't move that story from local news into national news um, no I think you can Conflating two very different issues around BBC and standards of journalism. I think BBC Verify is a, you know, undoubtedly a good thing. I notice as well, Mariana Springs got a new series coming up soon about conspiracy theories and the, the dominance of fake news in the media. You know, I think stuff like the Channel 4 fact check is a good thing. The BBC in many ways are following that. The BBC is in a tricky spot because it has to cover stories that it perceives to be in the national interest that are of public interest. And and there's a very subtle distinction between national interest and public interest. Just because the public are interested in something doesn't mean that it should necessarily be the top of the news. Um, And news judgment is a very, it's a very different, it's it's very different because it, it's subjective in and of itself about what you choose to 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 highlight, as as I think you very you very well described. Um, The question of on, on the case for Schofield, however, is who knew what when? I think that is of genuine concern because it's about, it ultimately becomes an issue about protection and, and misbehavior of, of people in public life and the lines that they cross. Yeah, we talk about GB accountability. News. Yeah, we talk about GB News and Eamon Holmes gave an interview yesterday to Dan Wilson, I think on GB News as well. And that's that story is just going to uh, run and run. Um, right, so have you got on manoeuvres? Well, a recurring theme of today's episode is Boris Johnson. So... <sighs> Uh, unfortunately. So um, the first name I'm going to give you is former BBC journalist, Guto Six Months Harry, um, who was the Prime Minister's former Director of Communications in the final few months of his disastrous premiership. Now, Harry quit, he's, he's Welsh, um, he quit GB News after taking the knee during a discussion about racism towards England's black footballers. He was largely derided for it. 
I'm not going to criticise a journalist for reinventing themselves as a podcast host because, <laughs> because me and you could be accused of doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, but he's launched a podcast about his six months at number 10 on Global. He was interviewed on News Asian podcast. That's a podcast I do enjoy and I do listen to with John Sopel and Emily Maitlis. Um, he was interviewed about another. So he's on Global. So, so, so News Agents interview Guto Harry about his podcast, which is also on Global. And I listened to it. I'm not kidding you. I was almost shouting um, at my mobile phone as I listened to it because all he did is plug his podcast. It was He was a total apologist and a total cheerleader for Boris Johnson. It was embarrassing. I think he's lost all relevance, all credibility. I'm going to read you a review. And I've not cherry-picked this as a means to prove a point. This was typical of most of the reviews about his new podcast, which I'm not going to mention because I don't want to give it any more airtime. It was This was the review. It was entitled Ghastly. I've never left a negative review before, but I'm appalled at the way in which uh, Guto... How do I pronounce his name? Guto Harry. Yeah, exactly. Seeks to explain himself in the most dismissive terms, such unprofessional behaviour. What is most disturbing is Harry's repeated smearing of Sue Gray in a way clearly designed to portray her in the most negative terms, based on a paranoid outpouring from Boris Johnson. Whoever wrote that ghastly review is absolutely spot on. I think I think it's terrible. I think Emily Maitlis and John Sopel did a half decent job of challenging, you know, Guter Harry. They sounded embarrassed about a promotion job for his podcast, which was dressed up as an authentic interview. It wasn't. I think it's really poor by Global. Do you think I'm just going off on one or is there any point to what I'm saying? You are definitely going off on one, yeah? But that yeah. is no bad thing. I think, yeah, it's an absolute shocker and it comes again down to judgment and choosing stories for the ratings. Here we are though, Chris, talking about I know you've not named it, uh, boosting Harry's standing just a tiny little bit. But frankly, he's a busted flush who has nothing whatsoever to contribute. So who are you going to come back to me on, on who you think is on manoeuvres? Uh, appropriately enough, I give you Boris Johnson. He's missed 187 votes out of 189 in Parliament. He's sent out his bootlickers, like Harry, to uh, defend the absolutely indefensible record. Um, he was clearly a presence in the sidelines behind the National Conservatives Conference, encouraging people to go along and, and that other ridiculous conservative demo democracy one that Peter Crudus, one of his funders, was back in as well. Um, and he's speaking to, I think he does genuinely think at some point he'll be back, but he's in the corner. I think he, I think he's over for him. Yeah, I think it's over for him as well. One of the, and you talk about, you know, whether or not by talking about certain people, we're giving him some more credibility and some more airtime. I think you're right in the sense that I hear people talking about politics and talking about football and they just talk and talk and talk because they've got a lot of time to fill as well. Um, I, I think Boris Johnson, I can't see any way back. I can't see, and I wouldn't be surprised. I generally wouldn't be surprised to suddenly find him not standing at the next general election. If he looks at the numbers six weeks before the general election and realises he's not going to win it um, that's a big call for me I've made him before and I'm more often than not right well maybe he can spend more time with his ever ever growing family his wife just announced that she's expecting her third child indeed and uh, on that note let's go for an interval I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community and the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and 
lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. Welcome back to part three of the Northern Spin podcast. We call this the fun bit, the cultural bit. Sometimes I try and get Chris to open up and become a little bit more Northern. But this week, Chris, let's, we want to talk about something really serious and it's about skin cancer. So tell us what's happened. Absolutely. So May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month. Um, we're almost going into June, but it's as relevant for June, if not more so. Um, and and I, st- I opened up, I decided to open up about what happened to me. Now, people who know me on LinkedIn and social media will know that I'm quite, uh, you know, I'm quite an open guy, but I don't tend to talk about a lot of personal stuff. I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't write about negative stuff on Facebook. I don't think people are interested to know whether or not I'm feeling well or, or not. But I thought to myself, I thought, I want to open up about this because I believe genuinely I can make a difference. Long story short, last summer, I'm in the shower, try and get that visual thought out of your mind, um, washing my uh, my thatch, my hair, and I could feel a slight spot on the top of my head. And if you pick your palm of your hand down the top of your head, that's where it was, right at the top. And I could feel a spot. And this spot was quite persistent. It wouldn't go away. And uh, like a lot of things in life, I mentioned it to my wife and she said, look, if you're not sure, get it checked out by the doctor. Went down to the doctors and um, after getting through the 8am you know storm to try and get through and in fairness to the doctor she looked at it and said I'm not sure I'm going to refer you to a, uh, uh, a dermatologist. Now, I was referred to a dermatologist called Dr. Ramouche, a fantastic guy. He looked at it and said straight away, he said, that's a basal cell carcinoma, a BCC, which is the most common form of skin cancer. So he did a punch biopsy a couple of weeks after that, sent it away. I had to wait four to six weeks that crossed over Christmas and New Year. I knew it was a BCC straight away because of the way he, he spoke about it. And he did say to me, he was very reassuring. He said, look, nobody wants to get a cancer, but if you are going to get one and it is a BCC, that's probably the best one to get. So I went back, he confirmed it was a BCC. I had the operation in January, January the 23rd. Um, just a quick lesson, actually. If you are going to have a, um, you are going to have an operation for a skin cancer removal from the top of your head on January the 23rd, don't organize a round table on January 24th. Um, because literally it was like having a, a ball clip attached to the back of my head because every time I laughed, which in my case is quite a lot, I was in absolute agony. Um, and uh, I, I thought to myself, I thought, after I'd been through this procedure, um, I thought to myself, I want to raise awareness. I want to kill some of the myths that exist around skin cancer. I'm not somebody, I've never, ever been on a sunbed. I've never smoked. I've never done drugs. I've never been on a sunbed. I go on holiday. I sit in the shade. I wear Factor 50. When I play cricket, I wear a cricket cap. And yet I got this skin cancer underneath my hairline. Um, there's um, So I posted something on LinkedIn. I shared it on Facebook. I shared it on Twitter. I got over 100,000 people engaged with me. Sam Billings, who's an England cricketer, who recently got diagnosed and treated for melanoma, another type of skin cancer, far more sinister than mine. He retweeted it. Um, I've had three people contact me separately on LinkedIn saying that they've made appointments with their doctor based on what they read, saying that they've got persistent spots. They want to get them checked out as well. And, and, I, and I saw you, as I mentioned earlier, putting suntan lotion on your head as well, on your face. It's so important. Yeah, it is. Uh, really well, fair play to you for doing all of that, Chris, and as a really valuable public service to share your experiences. So hopefully people can, um, 
can make what could be life-saving decisions. Yeah, yeah. I want to mention Stockport now because you really made me laugh this week. Town of week. Culture. You did, absolutely. Andy Burnham announced it was uh, Greater Manchester Town of Culture last week. Yeah, well, I want to talk about a video that you did, which was Comedy Gold. But before I do, and it really amazes me, you know, because I think uh, our podcast should be sponsored by Heineken because it reaches the parts that other podcasts can't reach. True. Because somebody came up to me and they love any mention of Ben Blocker House and they love it. But they said to me, they said, Chris, they said, why, why is Stockport MP Nav Mishra still, I know you don't like to talk about it, Michael, but it's important for the purpose of honesty and openness and transparency, something you want of our politicians. Yeah, indeed. You need to be transparent and open about it. And they've said to me, why does Nav Mishra continue to block Michael Taylor? And I said, I'm not even sure that he is. Let's have a look. Let's have a look, see if he's blocking you. Yeah. Well... It was last week at the Hat Museum in Stockport. It was the opening of the uh, the announcement by Andy Burnham. Blossoms were there, the fantastic band from Stockport who just opened a new salon. They had the opening for their new speakeasy bar in, in town as well that Tom Ogden and his wife Katie have invested in. Um, the launch party for that was on Friday night. There was the event at the Hat Museum. So obviously... You know, that would have been a good opportunity to go to Nav and ask him why I'm still blocked by him. So presumably you, you asked Nav. But he wasn't at either of those events and I wasn't able to ask him on, uh, uh, I'm still blocked. Yeah, so. Well, dear listener, I will continue to ask that question. I also wasn't outside Edgeley Park last week when I made my video. Well, I need to talk to you about this video because what you've done is been culturally transformational. <laughs> so you you do your videos for Business Desk. You did one today, actually. I did. Um, and what you do is you bring these stories to life. You did one at JD Sports a couple weeks ago where there's a story that you're writing about and you just get a picture of you or, or a video of you standing outside those premises you're like one of those bbc weather people who stand next to the uh, the sea during no, the storm it's not weather chris it's news it's news it's news but you were talking about the fact that stockport county who sadly lost their league two final uh, playoff at wembley uh, on sunday on penalties very unfortunate for them um but you produced a video um i think that's probably one of the reasons why so many people went to uh, wembley you were outside Edgeley Park and it turned into what can only be described, Michael, as comedy gold. What happened? Yes, yeah, so I recorded a video doing a piece to camera and then two lads went past on ponies, <laughs> bareback ponies. For me, for me though, Chris, it's just a, I, I don't know why that was funny. You know, it's just a, a normal day on Edgeley. So, and, and all like Matt Wynn, one of the Stockport councillors, Christine Carrigan, another of the Stockport councillors from Brinnington, who haven't, they haven't blocked me, by the way, on, yeah. on, on any social media platform. They thought it was great. They seemed to like it. That, I was a bit nervous that people might think I was trying to be rude about Stockport. For me, though, it's just one of those moments of luck and serendipity that sometimes arise in journalism. And I like to think in years to come, it will, people will be comparing it to James Burke doing his piece to camera before the Voyager space rocket launches from Cape Canaveral. If yeah. you've ever seen that, if you haven't Google it, look it up. It's absolutely brilliant. Seriously though, commiserations to County. They've done better every single one of their last nine seasons. They've improved since they unfortunately went down to National League North. They've got steadily better in all of that time. Um, and hopefully so if they do better next season, they'll get promoted. So that'll be good, won't it? Congratulations to Carlisle United, or, or, or I would say, Congratulations to my cousin David's team, yeah. Carlisle United. But it's the Premier League where a lot of the attention has been turned over the weekend. Leeds have gone down, bad for the North. Everton have stayed up, 
but they're still facing a really uncertain financial future. And it could all have been so different for them if Venkis had bought them in 2011 instead of Blackburn Rovers. And congratulations as well to Sheffield Wednesday. Darren Moore, the manager there, did a wonderful job. They beat Barnsley 1-0. Yeah. Wasn't the greatest game, but uh, Josh Windass, who I thought was quite graceless uh, afterwards when he did his post-match interview, he scored the winner in the 123rd minute. Now, I did mention earlier that when I looked at you and you walked into the room, I thought you were missing a bounce. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> You've got post-succession trauma. Uh, trauma. So I'm not going to spoil it. The final episode of Succession was aired yesterday on Monday. We're recording this on Tuesday. Um, I haven't watched any of it yet, so I'm looking forward to watching it. But I listened to a piece about uh, Jesse Armstrong, who is the creator of Succession. Yep. Hadn't realised, English creator, born in uh, Oswestry in Shropshire. He went to the University of Manchester. He also worked as a researcher for the Labour MP, Doug Henderson. No wonder you love Succession so much, because it ticks every single <laughs> cultural box in your life. What, Oswestry? No, no Labour. Oh, right. No, he's great. I mean, he also wrote um, The Thick of It. Uh, well, he was a part of uh, Anando Iannucci's writing team on the thick of it. He created Peep Show, which I think is amazing and, and contains possibly one of the greatest comedy characters that's ever been created, Superhands. Um, what a guy. But I, I did watch, indeed, the final episode of Succession last night, and it was everything I expected it to be. You quite incorrectly... Uh, identified a, uh, a lack of bounce. I'm still buzzing from seeing it. It was an hour and a half of amazing television. It had everything. And a bit like The Sopranos, they kind of managed to wrap it up in a way I didn't think they would do, but they have. And it just felt right. Here's the amazing thing though, Chris. I know you haven't watched it and I know a lot of people haven't watched it, so I'm not going to throw any spoilers out there. But the essential ingredient of succession is that essentially with one very, very incredible exception, nothing really changes, right? Nothing really happens. And yet you've got four series of incredible drama from the beginning to the end. Essentially we're back where we started. I, um, I, it is incredible. But, but, but what's the measure of outstanding TV? And I'll give you an example. Dialogue. Yeah. Well, I watched Happy Valley. Um, there's, there's one line in it. So there's someone in it called Jess who's not in it anymore. And Kendall's coming out of the scene and just goes, come on, let's go to it. You, new Jess. <laughs> that's just that's brilliant. It's, it's like me going, hey, you, new, new Jamie. <laughs> well, well the point that's Charlie, by the way, who's our uh, producer. Yeah, okay. But, when you, but, but when, when you watch absolutely captivating TV that really sucks you in, and when I watched Happy Valley and I watched the, uh, the climax of that, when it finished and the credits appeared, me and Mrs. M were watching it, just looking at each other, thinking, <laughs> wow, you know, wow. And I don't know whether or not where you and Mrs. Taylor last night, when Succession finished, what did you do? How did you feel? Just thought, wow, it's great. Well, might watch it all again. It's brilliant. Well, I watched... Um, I'm happy. I'm just, I'm going to luxuriate in it. I even, I even wrote up a new story about, well, I'm not going to say what it is because it's a spoiler, but yeah. But anyway, you tell me what you've been up to. Yeah, I went to watch Manchester United versus Chelsea, Old Trafford on Thursday. Men, I, men um, or women? Was that a men's game? It was a men's game. It was a men's game, actually. Yeah, the, the women's season finished on Saturday. Okay. Man United, unfortunately, just missed out to Chelsea. Um, but, um, but, but Chelsea uh, men's team, what a shocking team that was. Well, um, managed by Frank Lampard, who's a terrible yeah, manager. Yeah, yeah. His record mm. since he came back in was poor. But in fairness to him, I think Chelsea were on the slide even before he came back in. I think it's so I've, the, I've been um, trying to make you more northern, and yet you're becoming even more cockney 
by going to Man United. Yeah. Well, cheap, dude. No, Sorry. Sorry, United very, fans. No, very cheap, actually. Man United um, obviously play Man City. I think it's the first time they've ever played in an FA Cup final on Saturday. And uh, I was with uh, Adam Mitchison, one of your friends from yep. Fresh Walks, yep. at the weekend. He's been uh, on his hands and knees praying that uh, Man United get a result of the weekend. I sensed... He's what do you not, think is going to happen? Well, me, I think, uh, incidentally, I said Man United will beat Chelsea 4-1 at the start of the game before before ball was kicked. Um, I think um, I think Man United, I think Man United will start well. I think if they can get the first goal, Come we've on, got get a chance. Point. Are they going to win? Three-one City. Yeah. That's what I think. So, what about you? What do you I, think? Yeah, I think City will win two-nil. Um, I watched a brilliant four-part series on the BBC called Steel Town Murders. I like true crime. Um, it's based on the real-life serial killer in, uh, or a real-life serial killer in Port Talbot in the 1970s. So, two two friends, two two young girls were murdered, and then uh, two months prior to that, seven miles away, another young girl, 16-year-old, was murdered. And uh, at the time, the police didn't link them, but they took DNA away from the uh, the crime scenes. Years afterwards, when DNA came in, about uh, back end, I think 1999, um, they, they, they carried out some DNA and were able to link these three murders. So suddenly the police are looking for a serial killer. And uh, the brilliant performance by Philip Glenister, um, you know, who's a wonderful actor. He plays the uh, DCI Paul Bethel. And uh, I also, after that, was interested by it so much that I watched the BBC's real life story, the story behind Steel wow. Town Murders. And it's absolutely fascinating. I have got one whinge. If we had a Villain of the Week award, and you might think I'm being harsh on this, but my daughter and my wife went to watch Sam Smith at the AO Arena last week. He plays four songs and then... The, you know, the lights go off. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, and bearing in mind the history, you know, of what happened there, there was really poor communication for a period of time. And then it's announced that the show's cancelled because of um, Sam Smith got a vocal cord issue. My wife messaged me to say, I wasn't there. Um, what's going on? You know, so the fact that she had to message me to find out what was going on at the AO Arena was really poor. Now, the people will get their tickets refunded, so they'll be able to book other concerts, hopefully when the main act doesn't go up after four songs. It's not going to cover the cost of people's travel. It's not going to cost. Uh, it's not going to cover the cost of people's accommodation as well. Mm, uh, well, I think you've been slightly harsh in calling him a villain. You know, if you go to a football match and you're expect, if you've got a ticket for the cup final at the weekend and... You know, Kevin De Bruyne breaks his leg in the first minute. You know, he has to go off because he's injured his leg and he can't play anymore. And you might think, well, I'm starved of the chance. I know it's a solo performance. It's different than um, than a team game and the, can bring on a substitute. He can't bring a substitute. There isn't there isn't a stand-in like there is, you know, even in the theatre. Sometimes they, actors have stand-ins. I, You know, if his vocal cords have gone, his vocal cords have gone, he can't carry on. The communication issue, I think that's fair comment, especially mm. as you quite correctly said, what's gone on at that arena in, in the past. But um, what have you been up to this week? Okay. So you, you're not letting me finish. Let oh, me finish. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think, I just think you've been slightly unfair on Sam Smith. If his vocal cords have gone, he can't carry on and he could seriously damage himself. But, uh, but you make a fair point. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I went to the Coronation Street Visitor Attraction ITV uh, as part of the labor event down there. Where I was pulling pints behind the bar of the Rovers return with my mate, Johnny Reynolds. Labour MP for Staley Bridge and yeah. Labour Shadow Business Secretary. Yeah. Um, I also completed a book, Outcast by Bernard Ginz, a really good book about the takeover battle of William Cook, a business in South Yorkshire in the 1990s. I know you like a good thriller, Chris. This was a true story, though. Really enjoyed it, really well written, and a real 
obviously a, a, a work of some dedication by Bernard, who used to be the business editor of the Yorkshire Post. Um, I'm currently working on a true story all of my own that actually really will make people sit up and listen. And I think could make a really good podcast or true crime series. Let's see. <laughs> Well, that's a uh, very cryptic. Um, before we go, I'd like to pay tribute to the news and health and science editor at ITV, Emily Morgan, died at the tragically early age of 45. She um, she had lung cancer and uh, died after a very short illness. I think it's really sad, I think, when you read yeah. stories like this, especially when people are younger than, than we are. Yeah. And it so just brings it home. Yeah, it does. So that's it, everybody. That's it for episode four of the Northern Spin podcast, season four, indeed. If you want to join FI Real Estate Management and sponsor this podcast, you know where to find us. Um, nine of our most downloaded episodes were in season three. So we are growing and some good ones this season as well. Yeah. If you want to join them, please get in touch with us. We're on Apple Podcasts. Please give us a review. You can review us on Spotify as well, apparently. So you must do that. Don't forget to subscribe and download. That's how we get our statistics up. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One. Watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media, to Charlie and Alice for recording this podcast. Special thanks to music producer Elliot Taylor for providing the tunes. My name is Michael Taylor. And my name, as always, is Happy Clappy Chris McGuire. <laughs>